This evening's reading is on page 1174, and it's Ephesians 3, and we're starting at 14. A prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good evening. I was, I was slightly concerned that I was going to be the only one that hadn't jetted off for half term or the bank holiday weekend, but I'm, I'm pleased to see that I'm, I'm not. It's, it's good to see you and we trust that God will bless you for being here this evening. You, you've hopefully picked up if you haven't been coming regularly that we're midway through a series in Ephesians that's based around this book. This is week six and we find ourselves tonight at the end of the first half of the book. It's a a letter that quite neatly divides into two sections of three chapters and the first half of the book which we're wrapping up tonight really looks at the doctrine of salvation And in the second half, we have a call to unity in what really amounts to an exhortation to Christian living. I heard someone say that the first half of the book is the facts, and the second half of the book is the acts. And I thought that that was quite a a neat way of, of helping to remember what's going on here. And so over the last month or so, as we've looked at the first half of this book, we've seen in chapter 1 God's plan to unite everything under Christ. In chapter 2, we saw that we're reconciled to God and to each other through the death and resurrection of Christ. And last week, in the first half of chapter 3, we saw the revealed mystery of Christ who was crucified for all nations. And so the first half of this book wraps up with this prayer in verses 14 to 21. And it's a prayer which has something of an aborted start. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see he actually begins the prayer in verse 1 of the chapter. And then he says, for this reason, and then led by the Spirit goes off on something of of a tangent. Admittedly, it's a pretty good tangent outlining God's eternal plan for the Gentiles, which we heard about last week. And so we come to verse 14, where Paul again picks up his prayer by repeating this phrase from verse 1, for this 
reason. For this reason, he was praying in the light of God's plan for the Gentiles, which he'd outlined in the previous section. And really the basis of his prayer here was his knowledge of God's purpose, which he outlines in the first half of this book. And it's that knowledge that meant that he could pray confidently, knowing that it was according to God's will. So he starts this prayer in in verse 14. He's in prison, remember, and we see that he's kneeling. And that's, that's quite interesting because the cultural norm of the day was to pray standing up with your hands in the air. But he felt the need in the light of the greatness of God, of which we'll hear more later, to make something of a physical expression of his reverence for the Almighty. Because intercession involves submission. It's a, it's a recognition of who we are and who God is. And whilst kneeling to pray isn't something that's mandated in the Bible, we see people praying in all manner of, of positions and situations. It's something that we do see throughout the Bible at moments of great significance. It's an interesting study to look at. You'll see, for example, Solomon, when the ark was brought to the temple in, in 1 Kings 8, he kneels. Daniel, when the edict was issued banning prayer in Daniel 6, he kneeled. Jesus himself, on the night he was betrayed in Luke chapter 22, he kneeled. It's something that's worth thinking about. You may recall, if you've been here in previous weeks, that this isn't actually the first prayer in the book of Ephesians. Paul prays for them at the end of the first chapter. And there he's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's praying at the end of the first chapter to God that he would give them knowledge. But here in verse 14, we see that he's coming before the Father asking for growth. Do you see the subtle distinction there? To come before him, to grow in him, we first have to know him as our Father. And then in verses 16 to 19, we have what I suppose is is the meat of the prayer. And you'll see that there's three distinct petitions or requests which he makes in it, each, each which relate to a different part of the Godhead. So you'll see in verse 16 that he's praying that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. In verses 17 and 18, he's praying that they might grasp the love of Christ. And in verse 19, he's praying that they'd be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you see that? So the Spirit in verse 16, Christ in verses 17 and 18, and God in verse 19. So let's look at these three petitions or or requests in, in turn. The first one starts in verse 16, and he's praying that they'd be strengthened for the work to which they had been Called And Paul wants them to be strengthened with power or with might according to the riches of his glory. That's a pretty good measure, right? They're not being strengthened based on what they need or or perhaps deserve, but the ask is that they're strengthened out of the riches 
of his glory. And you'll see at the end of verse 16 that this strengthening comes from the Spirit in your inner being. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that uh, outwardly, this is verse 16, outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This is the new nature of all believers. The old nature is powerless. Our bodies waste away. We see, even in our 30s, a few flecks of grey hair, some aches and pains when we wake up in the morning. Our human bodies deteriorate, but what the Bible tells us is that from the day of Pentecost, with the Spirit indwelling us, the Spirit energises a new nature in us from the time of our conversion. When I was, when I was baptised, someone gave me a book and they wrote in the front of it a verse from 2 Corinthians 3, 18, which says that we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the point's this, that salvation is just the beginning. But with the Spirit indwelling us, we are transformed. And the effect of that, we see in the next verse, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the promise that Jesus makes in John chapter 14, where he says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. The work of grace starts with salvation, but continues by his Spirit. Our natural predisposition is to resist God. Our sinful nature makes us not want God in our hearts, but by faith, led by the Spirit, we can be ever strengthened in our inner beings. The second petition or or request we see starts in the second half of verse, eight, verse 17. rather, And here Paul wants them to grasp the extent of, of God's love. The first petition concerned their hearts, their inner beings, but this petition concerns their minds, that they would grasp, that they would intellectually understand the love of God, that God loves the Gentiles as much as the Jews, and that the church is comprised of both who have come to him by faith. And so he says here in verse 17 that he wants them being rooted and established in love. And that's a pretty easy metaphor to understand, isn't it? I'm not green-fingered, but to have a good plant, you need good roots. Why does the best wine in the world come from France? Well, one of the reasons is because they don't irrigate their vines, it's against the law. So the roots have to go deeper. The mass plonk that comes out of Australia and elsewhere, it's all irrigated. And so the vines don't have the same rootstock. Perhaps more biblically, I was thinking about the parable of the sower in, in Matthew's Gospel. And we read there that some seed fell on stony ground. What happened to seed on stony ground. It's quite interesting. It says the sun came and then what happens? It withered because it didn't have roots. So Paul's praying that, that they'd be rooted and established in love, that they'd be 
seed on good, good ground, that they would grasp, that they'd intellectually comprehend how wide, long, high and deep is the love of Christ. It took me um, a bit of time to get my head around this because there's four measures here, aren't there? Wide, long, high and deep. And we're used to three dimensions. If you find a new wardrobe on eBay, it'll tell you its width, its height, and its depth, won't it? If you look at the holy city in Revelation 21, we're told that that has three dimensions. But here, the implication is that the love of Christ is perhaps beyond physical dimensions. And maybe we're going slightly into the realms of speculation, but, but, but perhaps Paul here is referencing some characteristics of God's love, which we've seen in the first three and a half chapters thus far. In terms of its width, we see in chapter two that it's all encompassing. In terms of its length, he tells us in the first chapter, verse four, that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In terms of its depth, we see in chapter 2 that we've been raised, we were dead in our transgressions and deserving of wrath. And in terms of its height, we also see a few verses later in chapter 2, the height to which he's raised the child of God, seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you think about it, perhaps it's not a surprise that the love of God is hard to understand. When you think about who he was and the life that he lived, he's the one at his baptism, the Almighty opened heaven and said, he's the one in whom I find all my delight. He's the one the angelic realms worship. He was a king Earth's greatest benefactor, and yet, because of love, he's the one that was born into the inauspiciousness of Bethlehem's manger. He's the one that could walk the earth and say, him that comes, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But he's the one, the prophet Isaiah tells us, whose appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He came to bring hope, to bring healing for us brokenness, to bring peace to our troubled souls. But he's the one the world delivered their verdict on by saying, away with him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. It's little wonder Paul wrote in his previous letter to the Galatians that he loved me and he gave himself for me. We actually see in verse 19 that that grasping God's love is something of an impossible task. It cannot be, it's incomprehensible. It cannot be understood this side of heaven. So he moves on from intellectual comprehension in verse 18 that they'd 
know and understand, to pray that the believers experience the love that passes knowledge in verse 19. And so we come in the second half of verse 19 to the third petition or the third request, and that's that they'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And we see at the end of the first chapter that the church is the fullness of Christ. And so there's, there's a circularity here that as the church is the fullness of Christ, so God fills his people with the grace and gifts that they need so that they might arrive at a higher plane of knowledge and enjoyment of God. The theologian Adam Clark wrote that amongst all the great sayings in this prayer, this is the greatest. To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. The passage ends with this short concluding doxology, really an expression of of praise in verses 20 and 21. And is it not right that we conclude our prayers with the praises of the one in whom we pray through? It's almost like Paul's answering a question before it's asked. Have I asked too much? Is what I'm asking within God's capability? But the answer here is fairly comprehensive. It doesn't leave much room for doubt. That God can do not immeasurably, sorry, God can do not what we ask, not all that we ask, not immeasurably more than we ask, but he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. And he does it through the power at work in us, the first petition of the three in the preceding verses. He does it because of the Spirit indwelling us. Look at the confidence that Paul has in God, that we cannot ask anything too great, because God is able. And so it's little surprise that he reaches the conclusion that he does at the end of the passage. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. The chapter in the book that we're following on Ephesians calls this section something like grasping the scale of God's love. So from my perspective, this was never going to be the most challenging talk to prepare or or deliver. We're on fairly safe ground here. Next week when we move into chapter 4, someone's got to make a call for unity. But I suppose there's, there's a danger when we... Here are verses that might be familiar to, to some of you already, that we, we leave church as having had our, our ears gently tickled with a little warm, fuzzy feeling inside, and we go home ready for a, for a bank holiday Monday. So I suppose the question is this, what's the, what are the practical lessons? What do we learn from these verses? And I thought that I might draw out three in conclusion this evening. The first one's this. Do you see that Paul is praying about the big stuff? Fundamentally, he's praying that they grasp the greatness of God's love. And the more they understand it, the more they'll be spiritually filled. 
Doubtless the Ephesian churches had a plethora of practical needs, just as we here at St. John's have quite a long list of practical needs. We share many of them at the monthly prayer gathering. We're trying to hire a children's worker. We need to make some plans in the next few weeks for any sabbatical. There's a broken window behind me. The loo floor needs replacing. I, I could go on. And these aren't bad things to pray about, but look at what Paul prays in this book. At the end of chapter one, he prays that they might know God better, that they'd know the hope of their calling. And here he's praying that they might know, that they might grasp the greatness of God's love. So do pray about the practical things, but pray fundamentally that you and all of us would understand and appreciate more of the love of God, which is spelled out in the first half of this book. Because if you think about it, there's no point hiring a children's worker if he or she doesn't grasp the extent of God's love. There's no point fixing the window in the loo floor if we don't use this building to preach, to teach, to share with others the extent of God's love. So that's the first one. Pray about the big things. I think the second lesson is this, that we, we grow spiritually together. Do you see in verse 18 that Paul's praying, not that they'd have power to grasp, but they'd have power together with all the Lord's holy people. If you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, I'd like you to think back to some of the most powerful encounters of God that you can recall. At home on your own, you might encounter God reading his word, reading a book, perhaps listening to a worship song. But I would suggest, and I'd be interested to hear from you afterwards, that as you look back over time, the most powerful encounters of the power and presence of God that you can recall will have been when you've been with the Lord's people, either at a church service or in a small group or, or perhaps praying with one or two others. Now, what I'm not saying is, you know, if, for example, you'd been the victim of a freak accident and ended up marooned on a desert island on your own, I'm not saying it's impossible to experience spiritual growth. But I think the fundamental point's this, that we're more likely to grow, and we're more likely to grow more with other believers. So what does that mean? What should we do if we grow better together? Well, prioritise gathering together on a Sunday. Join a midweek group. Some of you may recall the clipboards we had out a few weeks ago, when they next make an appearance, sign up for some things. If you can't wait till then, email the church office, ask the vicar for a coffee and tell him you want to get more involved because ultimately the sum of the parts, what we can achieve together should be greater than what we can do individually. So pray about the big things, grow together together, 
And I think the last lesson is this, to remember, to always remember that God is able. We see in chapter 1 that he's able to give you spiritual blessings. We see in chapter 2 he's able to make you alive in Christ. We see in chapters 2 and 3 that he's able to reconcile Jew and Gentile to himself. And we see in this prayer that he's able to exceed our wildest imaginations. So take comfort from that simple truth, but think about the implicit challenge it leaves us with. If God is able, then how are we going to use that? What are we going to ask him for? Jesus said in John chapter 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. So don't settle in knowing that God loves you. I would suggest that we should desire, that we should strive, we should seek to know more of God's love on earth before we see it more fully in his heaven. I was thinking of the words of that great hymn, when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. May God bless you.